from my home office in Washington, D.C., where it feels like the walls are slowly closing in on me, this is Everything About Hydrogen. Joining me from near and far are my co-hosts, Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute. Hey, Andrew. How are you? And Chris Jackson of Proteum Solutions. How are you guys doing? Andrew, that is by far your best opening line. I don't quite even know why you didn't start with that with the last one we did with the Hydrogen Council. <laughs> I've been tooling around. I've been tooling around with some new ideas, so I landed on that one this morning. I, I thought it was pretty good. I, I thought maybe you were trying to give our listeners the uh, false impression that you actually were still turning up to the office. <laughs> no. I actually was trying to figure out how to work into it that it's actually Sarah's uh, home office uh, and that I'm really borrowing it from her. Anyway, how are you guys doing? How's, how are things in London, Chris? All good. What's it like in Washington? Yeah, Patrick, I'm going to let you uh, field that question. How are things in Washington? I think they're okay. <laughs> How's the visa process going, Patrick? Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, Thanks, Andrew. Uh, yeah, like, like having having not left my home in several weeks, I'm not entirely sure what the outside world is doing. But um, you know, personally, I'm I'm hoping that if I can avoid any wildlife invading my home, I, I just hope all the other two people on this podcast right now can can say that, that the same has happened. <laughs> any any thoughts, Chris? Oddly specific. <laughs> I was going to say, as a complete distraction, uh, before we got a guest on the show, um, you know, we should at some point talk about the Daimler Volvo JV, uh, which came out this week, which is really exciting. You know, another one point three billion dollar fuel cell company. So, yes, you know, if people were curious what coronavirus is going to do for this market. I mean, that's a pretty bold statement of intent. Um, you know, obviously coming on the back of heels of Daimler saying they're going to drop the GLC fuel cell model that they were looking at on the passenger side. So, kind of bailing on the passenger market but doubling down on the heavy duty side i think that's a pretty interesting uh pretty interesting shift in the market we're seeing from today that that definitely is um is maybe kind of a sign of maturity in the market i don't know or, or maybe a retreat well i mean andrew patrick what are your thoughts on that well my two cents on that was and i wanted to ask you guys i mean i think knowing what we know about how uh fuel cells are applicable in the in the passenger side versus uh long haul and commercial side uh, that seems to me uh, to be sort of the reasonable and, and maybe not unpredictable uh, approach, right, from a company like Daimler. Uh, I feel like that makes sense. What do you think, Patrick? Yeah, like, I suppose, I suppose in a sense, right, it's, it's, a, it's a little surprising that these two announcements came in, in such proximity. But yeah, like I think I think take the positive from this, which is that with some work and with some exposure to the different markets and the, the technology itself, you know, Daimler and, and Volvo have decided this is sufficiently worthwhile to invest a very large amount of money in in a uh, joint undertaking or a, an effort to uh, develop the fuel cell heavy transport uh, market. This may be just a case of them realizing specific market dynamics that they're looking to, to target. Um, and yeah, it could be part of just a global strategy or an overall strategy that's that's just coming to bear. I think personal mobility, smaller vehicles, smaller fuel cells, um, smaller volumes makes it an, an easy, easier potential place to learn how to, to play this game and learn how to develop and implement and you know, design for these companies and perhaps the value that they they saw in getting into the, the personal mobility space and um and then kind of scaling to a heavy transport sp- scale um 
So who knows? Who knows? But uh, certainly not a shutdown of the market or, a, a, you know, a kind of a slight against the, the, the kind of potential of the technology. Changing sure. pace a little bit, guys, because well, I was uh, some, um, sorry, Andrew, you go. Oh, no, I was actually going to say, speaking of transport, uh, we've got uh, a pretty interesting company and an interesting guest coming on today. And I was going to see if uh, actually, Chris, I was going to see if you want to uh, give a little background about them. Uh, yeah, I should have finished off my question. I was going to try and put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> we, we, I think uh, the instructions explicitly from Andrew was at some point in a couple of months ago, you know, Chris and Patrick's all very well talking about cars and all that other stuff, but surely there must be some sort of kind of fun, kooky, or at least slightly more interesting Space Age-esque company that we kind of talk to. <laughs> and uh, having, having ridden off a list of the military-style ones, that which, which definitely are quite kooky and space age-esque uh we decided space uh, not space but uh, aviation kind of seemed like a an area we should look at and so uh we're really spoiled today we've got uh val from zero avia coming on to talk about um the uh zero emission fuel cell uh, plane technology that zero avia is developing talk about um their work on the first um commercial route with a fuel cell zero emission airline passenger plane that's due to run between um, the Orkney Islands in the UK and Scotland around 2022, 2023. And uh, yeah, it should be a really exciting show. I mean, there was also some announcements earlier this week about another company that produced fuel cell um, vertical takeoff and landing craft um, called Alakai. So this certainly isn't the only company in the space, but uh, Val's definitely um, a very well-known face in uh, in the clean energy industry. And, uh, you know, I suspect actually... Uh, now, Andrew, Patrick, you probably know far more about Val's backstory than I do uh, before he came and started Zero Avia. Yeah, no, I was just going to say Val's life or career trajectory, while much more impressive than mine, is near and dear to my heart as a guy who started out in the uh, battery electric vehicle sector with founding eMotorworks previously, which is a uh, smart charging and B2G company uh, here in the US, uh, which was acquired by Enel in 2017. Uh, yeah, no, that's, I think, uh, part of the interest of having Val on. <laughs> it's a kindred spirit in my world. Hey, guys. Sorry, it uh, took a little bit of time to uh, get set up here. Um, yeah, but happy to be on. Yeah, no problem at all. It looks like you are in the car at the moment. Is that, that accurate? That is <laughs> Correct. Yes. <laughs> where are you where are you going to or, or escaping from? Uh, no. Well, you can't escape uh, too far. Uh, I'm in California here. Uh, we're on the stay home order, so uh, it's it's not too far. It's just my uh, sort of mobile office for early mornings, I guess. Cool, Patrick. I think you were going to jump in. Indeed. So Val, um, perhaps we could kick off by uh, asking you to give a little bit of a, an introduction and background for yourself, and then perhaps a brief description of what Zero AV is doing right now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so uh, name's Val, founder, CEO of Zero Avia. My background is a uh, PhD in physics back from Mother Russia uh, about 25 years ago, and then uh, moved to the United States um, uh, about the same time. Um, Started a couple of companies, worked at McKinsey uh, Management Consulting for a number of years, uh, and then Google for a number of years. Uh, and my previous company uh, before Zirave was in the sustainable transportation space. Uh, we we're doing smart charging, energy management for electric vehicles. It was great um, experience. Uh, grew the company to uh, quite a good size, and it was acquired um, by a major utility uh, back about two, two and a half years ago. 
Uh, and that's when I started uh, my current company. Zirave is working on uh, sustainable aviation. We are uh, building, um, if you will, uh, zero emission engines uh, for aircraft uh, that people actually fly today commercially uh, or cargo. Uh, starting with uh, 10 to 20 seats, uh, our product launches in about three years, uh, certified for commercial use. Before starting Zero Avia in 2017, you were the founder and CEO of uh, eMotorworks, a smart charging uh, battery electric vehicle company. And uh, so I wanted to ask, you know, from your standpoint, what, what prompted you to change uh, from ground transportation infrastructure to aviation, but also from battery technology over to the hydrogen fuel cell side of things? Yeah, of course. Good question. Um, so I don't see this as much of a transition, like uh, in terms of thematic sort of change uh, from one area to another, I wanted to stay in sustainable transportation. So we were doing some land transport um, uh, technology before, uh, and now we're doing it in the air. I'm a pilot myself uh, of you know, 15 years or so. So it was um, sort of personal motivation uh, was a big part of it and personal connection, personal passion. So those two things combined. Uh, and I felt that at that point, my journey in the uh, sort of EV world had been successful and resulted in something useful. Uh, and I felt that the electric vehicle market on the ground uh, was on a good track to solve the problems that it needs to solve. Like back two years ago, even and even more so now, you have uh, every single manufacturer of the vehicles uh, it, it has at least one electric vehicle model. Everything is going well. Yeah, you know, people need to adopt it. But uh, from the technology perspective, things are done. In aviation, there's nothing like that, right? So nobody knows what to do. Uh, it's a huge problem uh, as we decarbonize everything else. Uh, aviation is going to be the biggest source of emissions, definitely transportation, maybe overall. And uh, there are no solutions. Um, so that was the motivation uh, there. And uh, last, uh, second question, second part of the question uh, on hydrogen versus uh, batteries. So as we started the company, we, um, you know, the first thing that we did, we were actually went to the uh, operators, the airlines and said, hey, what would you actually want to fly? Right. I didn't want to uh, do the um, another drone company basically for urban air mobility. And uh, th those are technologically wonderful vehicles, but there is no market yet. And uh, one has to create the markets and then clear the vehicles through the regulatory uh, perspective and then figure out how to do autonomy because otherwise business models don't make sense. So we thought that um, we would focus on the existing segments of aviation. Yeah. And then we would have to work with existing operators and existing types of aircraft. And it was pretty clear uh, after talking to the operators, looking at the vehicles, that the batteries would just want half enough energy density anytime soon uh, to propel a typical 10 to 20 passenger aircraft or comparable cargo machine for the distances that the operators absolutely want to fly. So our minimally viable spec for the product is uh, 10 to 20 seats over 500 miles. And it's just impossible to deliver on, on the battery. And not only now, but also I've been in the battery business effectively, right, with the EVs for six years, six, seven years. I know how challenging it is. We worked with a lot of different automakers in our eMotorworks journey, and, and it is very difficult to push uh, this that far. So that's why we decided to 
switch over to, um, well, not switch over, but start a company as a uh, hydrogen electric. Uh, we wanted to be uh, electrified powertrain because that gives you significant advantages on uh, efficiency, maintenance costs, uh, longevity of components and all that. But uh, the source of energy is uh, hydrogen fuel cell. Great. In which segment of the commercial aviation market can Zero Avia's uh, propos- propulsion systems uh, be utilized? And can you briefly explain how Zero Avia works with airplane designers and manufacturers to to modify their aircraft for fuel cell powertrains? Absolutely. So the segment that we are covering with 10 to 20 speed aircraft um, is uh, initially the regional uh, transportation, whether it's cargo or uh, passenger transport. 500 miles, it actually covers quite a bit. About 50%, 45 to 50% of all trips worldwide by aircraft are below 500 miles, right? So, uh, and it's getting more and more popular, right? Short, tall, point-to-point type transportation, smaller aircraft. There's generally a tendency over the last years uh, to go to smaller aircraft, more point-to-point. So you see a retirement of 747s and 380s and so forth. People are uh, having more dense routes on a point-to-point basis, which uh, favors uh, uh, you know smaller uh, aircraft in a lot of cases. And we are targeting the regional operators that might be also flying larger vehicles today, like 50 to 80 seats, uh, maybe even um, 100 person jets uh, on those routes. Uh, and we're coming in and we're saying, hey, um, we know that you're, uh, you're you're looking to make your operations more sustainable. Some of you are under pressure from the government. Some of you are under pressure from your investors. Um, and what we are offering is an option to go zero emission. So it helps your sustainability story. But also, and that's what's really exciting for me, is that we are able to deliver lower cost to the operators as well. Right. So it's not just about zero emission. It's about lower cost uh, on the fuel side and especially on the maintenance side. One of the things I wanted to ask is, uh, you know, in terms of Zero Avia's actual IP and what it is that sort of the core components that you're pulling together, um, from my understanding, Zero Avia doesn't have its own fuel cell technology. And I don't believe the storage tanks are themselves yours as well. So it'd be quite interesting to get a sense of kind of where is the sort of IP or where's the kind of... Um, the element that Zero Avia is adding, you know, do you see yourselves as kind of an integrator of existing solutions that you're pulling together? And so you're working with other people on the chain to pull together a package from different established components, or are you also building completely new uh, parts of the sort of technology from scratch as well as um, using existing off-the-shelf options? Yeah, good question. So um, we work together with the uh, with a number of uh, partners, I would say, right, on the um, uh, core components. We work with them, in a lot of cases, on modifying the base technology for aviation use, new materials, new ways to manage, let's say, the fuel cell stack itself, right? And uh, we are aiming to uh, secure preferential position on those technologies as they uh, get applied to the aviation uh, use case. Uh, on top of that, uh, we, of course, uh, integrate everything together, um, manage the uh, balance of plant integration for the fuel cell, then manage the uh, overall uh, flight computer, certified hardware, certified software, entire software stack. If you're uh, familiar with the aviation terminology, sort of FADEC, full authority, 
digital engine control system for hydrogen electric uh, powertrain is uh, uh, entirely ours. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, integration with the rest of the systems uh, in the aircraft, avionics, uh, uh, pilot displays, uh, pilot controls, um, all those things. And uh, getting all of that uh, certified and pushed through the uh, regulatory uh, process is uh, quite a task. Basically, you have to like to give you a glimpse, uh, you, you have to redevelop your entire software. So you can't just take, uh, you know, automotive uh, powertrain and say, hey, now we're going to stick it into aircraft, right? It's just not going to work. You have to redo entire software stack. You have to redo most of the hardware and you have to push it through the, uh, you know, testing procedure and all that, right? So that creates a completely new system. So Val, just to, to jump back to uh, kind of flight's kind of opportunity around emissions, I, I suppose given given the target kind of market that you've uh, identified with Zeravia, what kind of emissions reduction are you seeing per flight and, and have you a kind of a, a target market share that you think you can disrupt in, in maybe the, the medium term? Yeah, well, so we're hoping to uh, reduce the emissions to zero in the segments that uh, we're operating in. The uh, overall approach is uh, to uh, utilize, of course, green hydrogen, worst case, blue hydrogen, right, with uh, carbon capture. But uh, the primary approach is electrolysis uh, on site, ideally, or right uh, near site from renewable uh, energy. And so there's a lot of support for that. Uh, we're already talking to a number of infrastructure companies uh, and uh, uh, clean energy companies about it. So once you take that as your fuel, you're able to uh, reduce the emissions all the way down to zero. And then it's a matter of what percent um, share you can take off the existing market. And that evolves with time, right? So on our roadmap, as I mentioned, the first commercial launch is three years out, 2023. We're going to have these, um, well, we think of ourselves as the engine provider, right? So we're going to have engines that are able to uh, propel 10 to 20, all the way up to 20 seats. Yeah, that's going to be three years out. And then after that point, uh, three years after that, uh, we will have uh, the systems that are able to propel the aircraft of 50 to 80 seats in size. And then after that, uh, in four or five years, uh, we will have the uh, systems that will propel um, you know, aircraft similar to Embraer jets uh, or uh, smaller 737s or um, A319, you know, th things like that. So we are going to see, our belief is, we are going to see hydrogen electric approach in general. And we definitely hope to have competitors by that point uh, in time. And uh, hydrogen electric approach to take over successive segments of fossil fuel aviation. Because it's just um, it's zero emission, it's going to be lower cost. It is more efficient uh, on converting primary energy into the uh, propulsion than a turbine. Uh, and it is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So if you think about the timeline of you know, aviation market, which is generally you know, one generation of aircraft, um, can go 10, 15 years, and the uh, sort of a typical vehicle lasts for 25, 30 years. In 25, 30 years, we will have... Uh, maybe over 20% of uh, the uh, traffic in this type of uh, technology. That's, uh, that's my prediction. 
Just a stupid one, but I think, you know, I just realizing going through this, we maybe didn't ask an obvious one. I mean, there is actually a zero avia plane today. And, and as far as I understand, there is one. And, and as far as I understand, it has actually been in the air. Is that correct? Yeah, there are actually two. Have you yourself had a chance to fly it? Yeah. Are you the test pilot, Val? I think that's really what Chris yeah. is getting at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, now... <laughs> well, exactly, right? Uh, yeah, I, I was for the... Uh... I was for the first. Uh, I was for the first uh, flights. Um, uh, now we have a test pilot as well, and we have two uh, test aircraft now. One in uh, California, one in UK, actually. And so at uh, Cranfield, right? Yeah, Cranfield University um, uh, Airfield. Uh, we have over the last uh, few months uh, under the UK uh, um, a project um, that we got approved with Aerospace Technology Institute and Innovate UK. Uh, we have spun up the R&D and flight testing over at Cranfield. And uh, over the last couple of months, we have uh, built up uh, our second prototype. Uh, these are slightly smaller vehicles. Um, it's a six-seat, uh, two-ton vehicle that we're using to test all the components uh, of the powertrain before we scale it to the uh, uh, full-size um, sort of 600 kilowatt uh, system that would go into a 20-seat or 19-passenger uh, aircraft. And um, the, the, the six-seater that we're using is pretty efficient platform based on Piper Matrix, uh, Piper Malibu aircraft, uh, US-based. And um, it is the smallest aircraft that allows us to test all the components uh, that we plan to use in the uh, uh, commercial system. And maybe just two sort of practical questions. I mean, one being slightly more fun, which is what is actually the difference of flying a fuel cell zero emission plane as opposed to flying a regular plane? And then I guess the other aspect is what is there, is there much of a difference on the refueling and logistics side? Maybe you can talk a little bit about how that, how you envisage handling the green hydrogen or, or, you know, as you say, maybe potentially blue hydrogen refueling. So, so those two sort of pieces, what's it actually, is there much of a difference in the flight experience and how you fl- handle that as a pilot? And then on the ground, how is sort of those logistical aspects different and how you manage that? Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if you've seen um, uh, one of the videos that we have some, um, something shot from the cockpit as well as part of it. Uh, it's pretty quiet. It's much more quiet than a classic aircraft because the engine noise is not there. Right. And um, engine noise in this small aircraft contributes uh, quite a bit to the uh, to the cabin noise so that you have to be actually in a typical small aircraft. You have to be in headphones right um, uh, inside in order to to talk. So if you're running the uh, electrified platform, you don't you don't have to do that. Uh, So that was the biggest difference. Otherwise, uh, you know, we design our systems to be matching in performance the stock uh, systems. So there was no hidden performance, um, you know, takeoff characteristics, climb characteristics, and all those things were about the same. And we have validated all that through um, flight test program that we had here uh, in California. So in terms of flight dynamics, um, there's very little difference, but it's, it's quite it's significantly quieter. In terms of how we handle the uh, the fueling side of things, so at Cranfield, we have set up uh, an electrolysis system. I think it's being commissioned right now, and it's going to be able to produce at max power something like five or six kilograms a day from uh, uh, the grid supply. The idea is that initially we'll just uh, set up a uh, uh, wind-based uh, contract uh, for that electricity so that we can at least... Um, claim that you know we're using zero emission power ideally i would want to have direct connection 
off a renewable asset to the electrolysis system because that that is much uh, less expensive in the end, especially at uh, large volume. So that's what we're hoping to do as we scale. Um, so in a place like California, for example, um, you could do uh, a near-site uh, solar farm that would feed directly over DC connection to your electrolysis bank. And then maybe you have a, um, a sort of backup grid connection, uh, but not bi-directional, uh, because that, for that you need inverters, you need permissions, you need all that, and that creates a lot of hassle. But uh, sort of um, just uh, a grid supply to buffer up uh, your uh, your solar supply, right? So so that's the setup that uh, we're hoping to have. But at Cranfield, we have a small electrolyzer um, and we have a uh, mobile fueling truck uh, from um, one of our partners uh, in the grants uh, that operates uh, uh, at 350 bar uh, refueling. Um, I believe it uh, it holds about 50 kilograms, five zero uh, kilograms on board and can roam around the airport and uh, follow the plane and wherever we need to get a fueled, it can get fueled. So as we scale uh, or as the as the technology gets applied at scale, uh, we will see you know similar infrastructure as you see for liquid fuels right now, right? Pipelines going into the airports uh, and then underground distribution, fuel ports, uh, all those things, right? But give it time. Yeah, and I think you told me it, it's a regulatory reason why it has to be pressurized in the UK, right? Because I'm pretty sure in this in the states when I spoke to Alakai, which do the the fuel cell VTOLs, they were saying they can use cryogenic. So is there also a regulatory difference between what you can do in California on the storage side compared to the UK? And does that make any difference for what you guys are thinking? Well, the regulatory, yeah, for regulatory differences uh, throughout geographies, yeah. But uh, the reason we're doing compressed is, uh, um, well, it is regulatory, but it's not uh, because, you know, it's impossible to do liquid. It is possible. It's harder. Um, it's harder to push it through the uh, regulatory domain um because it is more complex system it has more failure modes right um there is thermal failure mode that doesn't exist in the in a compressed um and you have to you know in order to uh uh fly that commercially you'll have to demonstrate that you have robust um uh ways to mitigate all the failure uh, modes and if you have higher number of those uh then you have harder time to push this through so we figured since we are able to deliver the target mission, which is 500 miles, 20 seats, with compressed storage, we should do that. And, and Val, in terms of cost uh, to the to the airplane to the airplane owner, the operator, what are we? Ta- how does a hydrogen fuel cell system such as Zero Avias compare with uh, conventional uh, jet fuel propulsion systems? And what about the cost of, of hydrogen fuel compared to aviation fuel? Yeah, I'm going to do the comparison to the normal situation, not, you know, uh, the, the time when we have negative oil prices. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the way we compare it is uh, there are two components. One is the capital cost of the powertrain itself uh, and then the operating cost uh, of the powertrain. And before we, we do, you know, a comparison of those two, uh, it's good to remember that over a lifetime of powertrain, the total cost of operation is dominated by operating cost by far, right? So the amount of fuel you burn, the amount of maintenance that you do is just um, three, four X uh, in cost over the acquisition cost of the engine, 
of a typical engine. So with that, uh, our capital cost is about the same uh, as the uh, uh, turbine of a similar size. And the operating cost is significantly lower um, depending on um, the, the size and the uh, uh, sort of mission profile. It can be 50% uh, lower than a uh, turbine aircraft uh, that includes the uh, maintenance and uh, fuel cost. Um, fuel cost can be significantly lower than uh, jet fuel, especially for small operators that generally pay higher prices. And with uh, the production approach, as I mentioned, right? So renewable assets uh, near the airport, uh, feeding the electrolysis systems at the airport, maybe roadside, yeah? And then piping it over to the air side, you know, depending, depending on the permitting uh, required and additional uh, red tape um, at uh, the airport facility. But with that approach, uh, you can see easily um, sort of three to $4 a kilo uh, type pricing um, uh, at the pump uh, at the airports uh, three, four years out uh, when we plan to uh, launch commercially. And then it goes down from there, right? Um, and at some point, uh, you know, learning curve gets you uh, to a point when um, even uh, liquid uh, hydrogen becomes less expensive than jet fuel for large operators. And it's point, that point is not that far away. Val, perhaps perhaps you can tell our, our least listeners about the uh, the high flyer project uh, that you're you're conducting with Emic, and I believe you're you're spearheading it. Yeah, yeah, uh, happy to. So, um, high flyer project is a um, uh, UK based uh, project with uh, Aerospace Technology Institute and Innovate UK uh, with a couple of partners. Uh, Amec is one of them. Um, uh, European Marine Energy Center, and uh, they're experts in um, green hydrogen utilization for various uses. Um, and we met them uh, a couple of years back and were impressed with their capabilities in, uh, in that space. And we wanted to do something together. And when the time came, we uh, wanted them as a partner to help us with the uh, fueling infrastructure for this project. The project is about doing R&D, part of the R&D uh, in the UK and demonstrating the real long distance flying over in UK. We're planning in the second half of this year to have a flight from Orkney Islands uh, to the mainland destination of uh, 200 uh, plus miles of uh, a trip length on hydrogen to demonstrate that it is uh, entirely possible to fly a um, uh, an existing vehicle over reasonably long distance, commercially relevant uh, distance on zero emission fuel. Right, uh, and we see that as some of the first steps towards commercial adoption of this technology. We want to demonstrate to the operators. We want to demonstrate uh, uh, to uh, the aviation ecosystem that it is possible. And then the next step, and we're already working on the on the next steps. After that, the next steps are to then demonstrate what we call commercial spec operation, where we take those aircraft. And we work with the operators um, and we fly their actual routes, right? From uh, the, uh, you know, one of the airports that they serve to another airport that they serve. We, of course, cannot take paying passengers yet because we're not fully certified, but uh, we can fly the routes. Uh, we can carry the payloads. We can demonstrate the refueling times. We can already start uh, demonstrating some of the economics uh, attached to it. And that is going to start happening um, later this year, beginning next year. 
uh, we call them, uh, again, commercial spec demonstration projects. And you're going to see uh, uh, more of those. So, so Val, I mean, you're clearly preempting all of our questions because every single time I look at our list, we've got there's always you've covered something before. So I think I'm going to tweak a little bit the last one. And I, what I wanted to actually ask is this. I mean, given that you're doing a lot of work in demonstrating the viability of hydrogen, but as you rightly point out, you can't actually commercialize that right now. And I'm assuming that's mostly a regulatory element because you can't fly passengers. Uh, I wanted to ask a little bit about actually who the investors are in the business at the moment and whether uh, you envisage that actually kind of going down the line, um, you know, that some of these airlines at the moment will become investors in someone like yourself or whether, you, you know, you're looking more at the kind of traditional incumbents, the sort of Rolls Royces and the, you know, where is kind of the, the support coming from for the Zero Avia project and where's the investor base looking like it is and, and will be develop, developing as the business develops? Absolutely. To date, uh, the company was uh, funded uh, through uh, private investment. This is a combination of individuals, myself, uh, and uh, one institutional uh, funder, um, and it's public information. Um, the uh, uh, UK-based uh, sustainability consulting and investment firm uh, called System IQ, Systemic, has been helping us uh, from uh, pretty much the uh, very beginning as an investor and advisor uh, into the company. Uh, they've been super helpful um, on our journey. And uh, right now we are in uh, our Series A fundraise, so we uh, we have a number of conversations ongoing uh, and targeting uh, some strategic investors as well in the uh, uh, infrastructure space, which is uh, obviously quite important uh, for an endeavor like this, um, and aerospace as well, uh, in addition to the uh, uh, financial uh, investors. So. That's uh, how uh, we think uh, it is going to progress uh, over time, right? We we do need uh, a significant um, infrastructure support for something like this to actually work uh, in the market. Uh, so we see ourselves aligning quite uh, strongly with the uh, aviation fueling infrastructure people, like a traditional oil and gas that are very interested in uh, potential hedging of uh, their bets uh, into the cleaner fuels. And uh, then the traditional uh, uh, hydrogen sort of molecule suppliers um, uh, that we all know that are also interested in, the, in this new market. Um, so uh, we see uh, ourselves uh, to be aligned with those guys. Uh, and of course, uh, aerospace uh, uh, affiliation makes a lot of sense to, to work with uh, aerospace folks. And just because I know Andrew's team are going to kill me if I don't ask the question, can we, uh, can we tease out what the round uh, funding target is for your Series A? Uh, it's a 10 million. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, in addition to all of that, uh, we are um, securing uh, quite successful at securing uh, government support for our activities. So uh, UK project is already ongoing and um, there are additional um, avenues uh, um, that we're not just exploring, but um, have significant progress on and we'll announce them at the right time. Great. And Val, if I can impose on your time for one last question that uh, we actually got from a listener uh, about hydrogen aviation technologies. And you've touched on this, but uh, in the interest of making our listeners think that we actually read their emails and ask their questions, if you wouldn't mind uh, addressing this, uh, the listener is asking, it's Joel uh, asked us, do you see hydrogen and hydrogen propulsion systems being capable of carrying wide-body aircraft over long-haul flights 
any time in the foreseeable future. You've touched on it earlier that you see the progression happening, but is there a possibility of there being serious, uh, you know, transatlantic flights and major long haul flights being done on hydrogen systems? Yeah, and maybe even a timeline on that. Like you know, you're talking 2025 and 20. You know, this summer obviously for your three 200 mile flight and 2025 for the 500 mile flight. So you know, is a, is the first thousand mile flight the next decade away? Is it longer? I guess that's kind of the follow on, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually a very good question. And um, the 5,000 mile flight, or you know, several thousand mile flights question, is different from uh, you know wide body question. It's, you know, there are two two dimensions, right? Uh, how far? And how big, right? And when those both of those things are uh, sort of on the uh, top right side, uh, then it becomes more difficult, obviously, right? Uh, but we think it will get there. Uh, the timeline, I mean, it's uh, the timeline is fuzzy, right? With these kind of things, it's uh, it's it's far out. But um, I think uh, sort of twenty five uh, years is uh, a reasonable. Uh, expectation that uh, those things will uh, start to happen and you'll start seeing those. Now, there is still a question on how it will exactly be powered. So I think uh, it will be hydrogen powered, uh, but uh, whether it will be uh, full hydrogen electric or, um, you know, hydrogen turbine is still a question. Yeah. Uh, And maybe a combination of the two. Right. So we'll see. Um, for I, what, what I do know is that uh, for hydrogen electric to power that type of aircraft, we will need some reasonably uh, strong breakthroughs in uh, power density off the fuel cell systems, right? So I can see the uh, substantially current technology, uh, fuel cell technology to power aircrafts uh, with, of course, a lot of engineering to power aircraft up to so the 737 A320 size. But beyond that, uh, we will need uh, uh, new tech yeah, or the progression of the technology. Fantastic, Val. Thank you so much for the time and for joining us today. And I, I guess we hadn't realized that you are out in California. And it just occurred to me that you jumped on the call at 6 a.m. your time. So I hope we didn't impose too much on your schedule. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Apologies if, uh, if we got you up super early. <laughs> No problem. Yeah, well, uh, we do a lot of work with the UK, so uh, my day started early. Thank you so much. Glad to be uh, with you guys. Anytime. You know that old adage of never meet your heroes. I think I think the opposite has fo- come true for Andrew right now. I mean, it just smiled happened. Yeah. Face. yeah, it's true. Yeah, that that was that was cool. So. To hear that on current fuel cell technology, we can power up to potentially a 737. Yeah, that shocked me, actually. Like, like, like maybe even just taking a pinch of salt with it, that is incredible. That is dramatically more uh, kind of positive than I, I would have expected. I, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll second that. I was shocked uh, when he said that. I, I like also though, I mean, you know, it, it, I think there is kind of like a mark of a true entrepreneur that he's actually, you know, it, it not just sort of flogging the technology and saying, yeah, this is fantastic, but you know, he's actually getting in the plane and flying it. I mean, there, there definitely, to my mind, is an element of credibility in that, you know, if you're actually willing to get up and fly in the thing and trust it and, and kind of go that far and, you know, talking about a 200 mile zero emission flight this summer i mean i i just think very few people even within the hydrogen world really understand quite how 
far this is, right? I mean, if you picked up a BBC or an FT or, you know, the Wall Street Journal or something else and you looked at climate change, everyone is pretty doom and gloom on what our options are for decarbonizing aviation. And, you know, I certainly came out of that feeling pretty bullish, to be honest. So for, for, for folks listening and who maybe don't have great visibility or, or maybe don't just don't know, aviation is, is estimated at about 3% of, of global emissions. Efforts thus far to decarbonize aviation are largely limited to uh, blending of biofuels into, into jet fuel. And even, even that has been slow on the uptake to the, to the, the frustration of, of biofuels uh, producers. We are really, really desperately looking for solutions in this space. So to hear this level of optimism, but also to, to hear about the, uh, the potential rollout of, of short haul flights in a, in a reasonable time frame is, is pretty good. It's pretty encouraging. And um, yeah, if we can decarbonize short haul and, and small aircraft fl- uh, based flights, to start with and, and, and ramp up either biofuels or, or as Val says, uh, if we can start to make the move into larger aircraft with this space, we actually have a, have a pa- potential pathway. There's a reason to be optimistic in this, um, in, a, in a field where, as, as Chris, you rightly say, there's been a lot of uh, general kind of frustration and, uh, and a little bit of skepticism. Well, it's also interesting to me because I was thinking about this a little bit more off the show. You know, I mean, 500 mile range, 20 person plane is basically a private jet, right? I mean, obviously, there are commercial jets, but it's basically a nice private jet sort of scale, right? And one of the things that we have seen is this whole sort of flight shaming uh, movement that Greta Thunberg and others have driven. And I know talking to uh, my sister and her partner, who both work in the music industry, um, that actually it's a problem now for a lot of sort of musicians and performing artists is their kind of carbon footprint and things. And I can imagine actually for a lot of famous celebrities and and ultra high net worths, it is becoming a kind of challenge to want to live that kind of jet set lifestyle, but also be seen as somewhat sustainable and kind of not so completely out of touch. So, you know, (laughs) it's amazing to think that actually, you know, for a couple of these guys, I mean, I think Bauer's on $10 million for a Series A round. I mean, in the context of some of this, you've got to imagine that there are people sitting on the sidelines going, wait, I could have my own zero emission plane with 500 mile range that if I had a bit of land, I could put a solar PV farm down and produce my own hydrogen. And I have absolutely no guilt and remorse whatsoever. And it might even be cheaper to fly around. I mean, what does that do for how people think about transport, about uh, sort of climate change, about emissions, about lifestyle, I, that sort of uh, element of it is huge. And, and we don't really talk about it all that often on the show. And maybe that's because it's not so kind of direct facing the consumer. But definitely, I think the kind of implications on that are pretty big and, and really interesting. Yeah. And I, and I think the, the kind of general presumption that we have, you know, speaking to the, the lifestyle pressures and the flight shaming is that we will just fly less in the future. And while that might be, uh, you know, might be to some degree true, you know, we're we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic that has really, really hit the aviation sector very hard. I expect that, you know, if that sort of hesitancy, uh, in addition to the the kind of, uh, I guess, the financial implications of of, of the the COVID shutdown uh, come true, that the aviation sector is in in deep deep trouble, and consequently, solutions like this are needed possibly more rapidly to try and address some of these concerns and and you know as you as you rightly point to chris you know val val saying that if we can if we can do this a little bit cheaper then the the cost of aviation with zero carbon attached to it in the future might be uh, might be better it might be more so there, there's reason for optimism and obviously we're 
we're still quite a way away yet, but um, you know, this is a this is a little bit of a a, a light in a in a dark dark kind of room, really. It's not even just the emissions factor here, right? I mean, the, another thing that's going that's uh, works with Zero Avia's model and the technology we have today is that we're talking about primarily, at least for now or in the near term regional flights, short haul flights that use smaller airports uh, and you know the smaller you, you use the lower traffic airports in various regions. And part of that is that you get fewer people. It's not as much like those major international hubs where people are all packed together in their thousands upon thousands of people, which that particular model of aviation and airports may have more sustained hit from the impacts of COVID-19, right? Where there may be more of a shift to using uh, regional airports and smaller scale airports. And so really something like this kind of fits perfectly into what may be a new model of, of aviation travel. What do you guys think about that? Possibly right, possibly wrong. That is that is certainly something that's that's a conversation in the space around the, the actual you know nature of aviation like the aviation system as we have where you know some people have almost described a kind of a, a world where it's it's almost like getting on and off the bus right you get flight transfers from and you do multiple short haul you know stops and multiple flights per perhaps per day um i i, I don't particularly know whether that's you know, very practical, very impractical, or or whether it's very likely or not. But but certainly, we are in that space where where all all these cards have to go on the table, given the the challenges in the sector. So yeah, no, absolutely, that's that's a real a real thing under consideration. Yeah, I'm not sure that I had heard that particular model. More so, you know, I'm not sure that I would uh, see much efficiency in taking multiple short haul flights <laughs> per day or uh, on a regular basis. But I think it is it is potentially possible that you'll see increased traffic where where it makes sense going through these smaller regional airports because people will want to avoid these uh, you know crowded major hubs and major major airports that they're used to. Um, but you know that I I'm not sure if that's right. It's just kind of a thought that people have been throwing around and that I've read quite a few articles on. So I don't know if that makes sense or if that's what will actually happen. But if that were the case, I think this kind of model fits nicely into that. But uh, moving along with that, guys, in one sentence each, what do we think about the challenges surrounding developing the fueling infrastructure for hydrogen fuel cell propulsion systems at airports? I think it sort of makes a certain degree of sense, right? I mean, you know, if you look at big airports like Heathrow or Gatwick, um, you know, you're not actually allowed to develop much under the flight path. So why not bung a whole ton of solar PV in there, um, you know, and have it generating power and then have a meter connection to an electrolysis unit? I mean, there already is a hydrogen um, refueling capability near uh, Heathrow Airport in the UK. I think there are a couple of airports in the world that are certainly in Europe that are looking at hygiene for some of the material handling elements. So that doesn't seem wild to me for the early stages. I really just toss that one sentence limitation out the door or off the bat, huh, Chris? <laughs> yeah, just just to chime in. The other the other aspect that this raises is whether we're going to do on-site localized production or we're going to do large scale kind of uh, 
or production and then transportation. Um, and perhaps for the very, very big airports, the, the required um, renewables build out might be, might be, might be big anyway to start with. So yeah, there's a, there's a dynamic in, in production that's probably worth teasing out a bit, but an interesting, an interesting question for sure. Okay. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge thank you to Val Miftikov, founder and CEO of Zero Avia, for joining us on the show today. And we appreciate that Val made the time at the break of dawn in California to jump on a call with us. Thank you also to Patrick and Chris, as always, for their unparalleled enthusiasm and hydrogen expertise and for working so hard to make the podcast happen despite the difficulties of recording remotely these days. While it is still relatively new, I once again recommend to our listeners that they check out Patrick and Chris's panel discussion from a few weeks back with our friend and colleague Marcus Whitlawner from McKinsey & Company and moderated by Professor Marco Dell'Aquila from Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. The panel focused on the prospects of hydrogen as a clean energy vector, and the YouTube link for the recording of the discussion is available in the show notes for this episode if you are interested in checking it out. Also, we do love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at podcasts at inspiratia.com or find us on Twitter at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.